How are you? My name is Mike Kelly, and I'm very excited to be here. Sandy, my wife, is with me this Sunday. She'll come whenever it's possible from Seattle. We have been excited and prayerful about this moment. Uh, after we were sad and prayerful about the departure of our dear friends and your pastor and his family, along with you. Um, but what's really exciting uh, to us is that we'll be able to see in the front row, or maybe even before the front row, as it were, we'll be able to see what God does among you. So if I might just begin this morning by encouraging you to have hopeful eyes of anticipation. God has uh, spent abundantly on this church with His Son, and He has a purpose for it, and He has a pastor for it, and you're going to get to watch Him provide those things and reveal those things. And so um, this is not a time of stasis for your faith or your mission as a church. It's a time to continue it, to go from faith to faith. So thank you for letting us be a part of that. Um, let me cue up this first series of about eight sermons will be on the life of Joseph, who is, uh, takes up perhaps the most substantial part of the narrative of the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And then we're going to go into the mothers of Christ. We're going to look at his genealogy during Advent and learn from his, his maternal parentage. And then we're going to look at David, and we'll only have time for the good David. Um, we won't get into the other David, but we'll, we'll land on that, that, that big mistake he makes at the end so we don't let him off the hook. But um, with that kip, you'll notice we'll be doing a lot of narrative, and this is a narrative, of course, as the book of Genesis is. Now, um, so I need, to be, I need to beg your indulgence. I was a little concerned about the length of this passage, uh, because it's uh, extensive. But then I saw that you have two pages of announcements. <laughs> so what was, what was I worried about? You had two pages of announcements. And, uh, but, but what I want us to do is take the time and get in the habit of listening to Hebrew narrative and, um, because it is an oral art that was put into written form and has tremendous amount of literary shape to it in the written form, but we need to learn to just sit and listen. It will take about six, five or six minutes to read this. I'll do my best not to make mistakes. I'm not a professional reader. I'm not on Audible. But um, what I want you to do, actually, um, you do what you want because I'm not going to test this, but, but I would encourage you to try to just listen, not to follow along. Listen to the language. Listen to the story progress. If you want to follow along, especially to see where I made a mistake, you go right ahead. Let's begin our journey together with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for your mercies. And I ask you, please, Lord God, to lead and teach, to instruct us, to show us who you are, and to help us to love you and love others in Jesus' name. Amen. Jacob lived in the land of Canaan where his father Isaac had lived, and this is the story of his family. When Jacob's son Joseph was 17 years old, he took care of the sheep with his brothers, the sons of Bilna and Zilpah. But he was always telling his father all sorts of bad things about his brothers. Jacob 
loved Joseph more than he did any of his others because Joseph was born after Jacob was very old. Jacob had given Joseph a fancy coat to show that he was his favorite son, and so Joseph's brothers hated him and would not be friendly to him. One day Joseph told his brothers what he had dreamed, and they hated him even more. Joseph said, let me tell you about my dream. We were out in the field tying bundles of wheat. Suddenly my bundle stood up, and your bundles gathered around and bowed down to it. His brothers asked, do you really think we are going to be, um, you are going to be king and rule over us? Now they hated Joseph more than ever because of what he had said about his dream. Joseph later had another dream, and he told his brothers, listen to what else I dreamed. The sun and the moon and eleven stars bowed down to me. When he told his father about the dream, his father became angry and said, what's that supposed to mean? Are your mother and I and your brothers all going to come and bow down in front of you? Joseph's brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept wondering about the dream. One day, when Joseph's brothers had taken the sheep to pasture near Shechem, his father, Jacob, said to him, I want you to go to your brothers. They are with the sheep near Shechem. Yes, sir, Joseph answered. His father said, go and find out how your brothers and the sheep are doing. They came, then come back and let me know. So he sent him from Hebron Valley. Joseph was near Shechem and wandering through the fields. When a man asked, what are you looking for? Joseph answered, I'm looking for my brothers who are watching the sheep. You can, tell, can you tell me where they are? They are not here anymore, the man replied. I overheard them say they were going to Dothan. Joseph left and found his brothers in Dothan. But before he got there, they saw him coming and made plans to kill him. They said to one another, look here comes the hero of those dreams. Let's kill him and throw him into a pit and say some wild animal ate him. Then we will see what happens to his dreams. Reuben heard this and tried to protect Joseph from them. Let's not kill him, he said. Don't murder him or even harm him. Just throw him into a dry well out here in the desert. Reuben planned to rescue Joseph later and take him back to his father. When Joseph came to his brothers, they pulled off his fancy coat and threw him into a dry well. As Joseph's brothers sat down to eat, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with all kinds of spices that they were taking to Egypt. And Joseph said, what will we gain if we kill, excuse me, Judah said, what will we gain if we kill our brother and hide his body? Let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not harm him. After all, he is our brother. And the others agreed. When the Midianite merchants came by, Joseph's brothers took him out of the well And for 20 pieces of silver, they sold him to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the well and did not find Joseph there, he tore his clothes in sorrow. Then he went back to his brothers and said, The boy is gone. What am I going to do? Joseph's brothers killed a goat and dipped Joseph's fancy coat in the blood. And after this, they took the coat to their father and said, We found this. Look at it carefully and see if it belongs to your son. Jacob knew it was Joseph's coat and said, This, or it's my son's coat. 
Joseph has been torn to pieces and eaten by some wild animal. Jacob mourned for Joseph a long time, and to show his sorrow, he tore his clothes and wore sackcloth. All of Jacob's children came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will go down to my grave mourning for my son. So Jacob kept on grieving. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold Joseph in Egypt to a man named Potiphar, who was the king's official in charge of the palace guard. This is the word of the Lord. Well, that's quite a story, and it begins uh, the longest uh, single narrative in the book of Genesis about Joseph. And this is what I want you to learn from this, indeed from the whole series. Uh, I won't begin with finesse, I'll just begin with the lesson. If you get one thing out of Joseph's story um, in all these weeks, first of all, I will be discouraged if you only get one thing. But if you do get one thing, get this one thing. Uh, Stop trying to figure out God's providence and start trying to figure out God's promise. That's the whole story of of the story of Joseph. It's above our pay grade to understand and discern the providence of God in a given moment, and it's for this reason that he's given us his promise. His promise is, as it were, a Rosetta Stone that helps us decipher the hieroglyphics of his providence, but it's different in this sense. It doesn't decipher them. It just tells us to remain steady and steadfast and follow him and hopeful in the middle of all their confusion. So, please, for the sake of your own heart, for the sake of your relationships with overflow and anxiety and sometimes anger and despair, for the sake of the church and for your neighbors, stop trying to figure out God's providence and just figure out his promises. Then you'll live like Joseph, and Joseph's life was hard, as we're about to see. So we're going to look at the gospel of our dreams. They involve um, favor and future, and then the gospel of our nightmares, how we and others try to control those things, and then I hope we'll we'll learn a little bit about how to live there. So let's take a look at Joseph. I want you to understand that our approach to these narratives will um, depict them as if they're stories that teach us how God works in individual lives, but also teach us uh, about the Son of God, about the Scriptures. Remember, if you're familiar with the New Testament, at one point Jesus showed a couple wayward souls, the Scriptures, and beginning with the Moses and the Law and the Prophets, he said, hey, this is what they all say about me. So what we have in the historical books of the Bible, we might say, is this divine, historic, actually happened performance art that displays a picture of what God is doing in our life. And so we have this picture of the son of promise, just like our Lord Jesus, the son of promise. In this case, it's Joseph. He's the firstborn in a way. He's actually the lastborn, but he was the firstborn of the favored wife. He was the firstborn of the wife that Jacob wanted to marry all along. And we, I wish we had time to go back into all the accounts of the story of the um, rising up of the patriarchs. But because of the firstborn status of um, his beloved Rachel, he becomes this favored son. And if you read through the story of Genesis, you find out that 
that being the firstborn son gets all these promises, but, but usually leads you into all kinds of trouble. The firstborn sons don't do well. Adam didn't do super well. Uh, Ishmael was the firstborn son of, of a man named Abraham. He didn't do well. Jacob was the, the um, secondborn, but became the firstborn. It's a mess. So, um, you know, Joseph's getting swept into all that story. But still, something called primogeniture, the, the firstborn male child, has a set of honors. And he's um, his father's beloved and favorite, just as um, our Lord Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead and our father's beloved favorite. And he's adorned then. He's adorned with this robe. Uh, It is a a unique robe. Uh, We're going to talk about its reflections early or in Genesis in a moment. But it comes down. It's very long. Probably came down just a little bit, you know, to his wrist or before. It's a technicolor or a many-colored robe uh, or a fancy robe um, as uh, we have here in our translation. But it was a robe that would distinguish you among your um, fellow citizens or household members, certainly above your servants. And so we can start to see this beloved place that he has in the Father's um, heart is also symbolized in his status and the outward favor that he has displayed. Now, if you just get one thing, this series, you know, I want you to add to that. I want you to keep an eye just on the robe, okay? Because he's going to have a number of robes, and he's going to lose them until the last one. So this robe is going to become a symbol of his station, his favor, his promise, um, as the firstborn son. But when I think, when I speak of these things, I don't want you to think in terms of pop psychology. I want you to think in terms of biblical typology. This is not birth order stuff, you know. Um, this, this isn't self-actualization. This is an emblem and a picture of God's promise to cover us with honor, to, to give us the station of his son, and to ultimately to bless the world through us and through his children. You, if you're familiar with the story, and if you're not, that's fine. We're going to learn it together. But Joseph does okay. In about 14 years, he's going to be okay. It's going to be a hard 14 years, but he's going to do well. And he's, and he's going to fulfill a promise that was given to his great-great-grandfather, to Abraham, that all the nations were going to be blessed through Abraham. And he's going to be the agent of that, just as you are. But he's got all these emblems. He's got the Father's affection, and then he's got this, this outward sign, but he's, he's got more. Now he's got these two dreams, which he handles really, really poorly. He um, declares to his brothers that these sheaves that he had this dream of, um, their sheaves bow down to him. Now, I am the youngest brother. I have a younger sister, but I'm the youngest brother. And I exactly get what Joseph was doing here. Because older brothers are mean, even if they're not part of the biblical narrative. And so if I had a dream like this, I guarantee my brothers would know about it before they had their Captain Crunch the next morning. It absolutely would have happened. But remember, they already, were, we've learned in the story, they've already learned that 
that they um, have a secondary place to the father. There's already tension. They already can't say anything nice about him. So Joseph, probably not the most emotionally intelligent move, he just blurts it out right away, and they respond with contempt and disdain and with increased hatred. Um, Remember, he's wearing a robe. And what's that robe symbolize? Well, it's a picture of the restoration of God's purpose. The exact same language of the robe that he's wearing is used of the same words are used when God makes a garment for Adam and Eve. And God's restoring this. And when God restores this one promised son, well, the rest of the world, including our own flesh, gets a little uppity about that. Because guess what? I want to be the king. Am I the only one in this room that wants to be the king or the queen? You know, Brad said you were all liars, and I guess, I, guess, uh, <laughs> I guess he wasn't lying about that. No, we all want that. So when we hear that someone else is going to have this dominion, this restoration, well, it was hard. But it doesn't just end there. Obviously, you can imagine and should imagine um, that that scene was super awkward. Um, but he doubles down. Uh, because God doubles down, and then he has this, this dream that, that elevates it. Now he's going to be exalted above his family, but then this other dream has got the stars and the moon and the sun and his father, and it's really a picture of the whole world bowing down to him. Um, and this is how he's going to fulfill God, his promise to Abraham, um, to bless all the nations. And Joseph, like many of us who have figured it out, isn't shy about telling people that he's figured it out. 30 years ago, Sandy and I were walking, took a walk last night. We're talking about where we were 30 years ago. We were in a small town in Indiana called Yorktown, planning a church. And um, I had just graduated from seminary, which means I knew everything. And I was really, really sure. Um, and it was, uh, it was immature and inaccurate and wrapped up in a lot of stuff in my own heart that I had no idea about and wouldn't for decades. But, um, but there was also part of it where I understood the story of the Bible, the power of the gospel, the centrality of the things that we're doing now, the means of grace. And, and I really did believe at that moment that, that I had sort of an algorithm by which I could, I could um, orchestrate at least this church plant, but probably my life too. And, and if enough people listened to me, maybe even the whole world. I would have never said that. And I'm a little embarrassed that I said it out loud here. I didn't plan to say all that out loud here. But it's a picture of Joseph. It's a picture of us when we think that having heard the promise we've then anticipated what God's providence is going to be. That we know how it will go because we know God loves us. He's given us a symbol of his favor to us. And then he's given us a vision for what he's going to do. And that's for the whole church, all the people of God in every age. We have been given the operating system of heaven and earth. But here's the bad news. We don't have administrator privileges to the operating system. And Joseph's going to find out that he didn't either. 
So let's look at, those are the promises of the, the gospel of dreams. And how do we turn that into the gospel of our nightmares? Well, it's that immature faith. I, I want to um, drill down a little bit about that. And, and, you know, Joseph was a picture of me in this early part. Um, Joseph had a lot going for him, but he hadn't learned yet that he wasn't going to be able to make it all come true. Um, he had desire, but that had not yet, through fire of trial, been melted into longing. We might say, like a young church planter in Indiana, um, he had testosterone that hadn't been resurrected into faith yet after death, or arrogance that had not aged yet into assurance. And that is probably what God is going to be doing in your life in the last 10 years and the next 10 years. He's going to be taking desire, courage, arrogance, and he's going to be refining them because he's told you the end, but he hasn't told you the middle. He told you your ultimate destiny, but he hasn't told you what happens next Thursday morning at 1140. He hasn't told you that. Your loss needs... um, to be matured into hope. Your wounds need to be seasoned into faith. Your service needs to harness your arrogance. You and I all need to learn that the gospel of God's dream for us becomes the gospel of our nightmares when we assume that we know what it means tomorrow or about our marriage or about the business we started or about the pastoral search that we're in or about the move that we've made, or about the friendships that we have. And then we take over, and we've already seen how Joseph tries to make that work. The gospel of our dreams, because the gospel of our nightmare, when we take control of it, and Joseph, from the beginning, is judgmental and and, uh, isolating. One time, our, our daughter came up. You know, we don't have children anymore. We have adults. But our, when, our daughter, when we had children, she came up and this exact phrase came out of her mouth. Mom and dad. Her brother's Luke. Mom and dad. Luke is about to tell on Ian. So just unpack that a little bit. Like, wow, that's terrible, Aaron. Time out chair for you. Save room for your brother. This bad report, we don't know what it was. It's uh, ambiguous, but it's not hard to imagine that, that Joseph, who was probably already in the dynamics of this blended family, to say the least, was already ostracized and younger and, and clearly favored. Uh, Joseph kept a catalog of, of uh, the other folks. You know, uh, Joe was talking about that earlier. He, he knew who behind him had sinned how and what pew and the one next to him. And he knew all that and he was going to go tell daddy. And uh, no doubt when he put on that robe, he strutted. I mean, we don't know that he strutted, but we kind of do know he strutted. He, he um, lorded it over them just as the real Joseph, the true Joseph, told us not to. The ensuing chapters tell us how mistaken that he was. Because you've not been given an instrument by which to manipulate the universe 
and get your way at work or in your neighborhood or in your um, small group, you've been given a promise. And, and the more we use that promise to, to um, try to orchestrate our way into uh, a pleasant life, the, the more we corrupt it. Now, now, let me be clear. I like pleasant lives. One of my goals is to have a pleasant life. Um, but it can't be my goal as a minister or a Christian. You know what I've found following God? If you want a well-ordered family and well-behaved children and a nice house and a nice yard and peace of mind, there are a lot of easier ways to do that than following Jesus Christ, the resurrected and crucified Son of God. You can, you can find that in a lot of places. He loves you. Look at us. He's given us all some measure of that. I'm almost 60. I've never missed a meal, thank God. Perhaps that's obvious, but still. He's been kind to me. But it's his promise that I follow. Joseph, Joseph in the next 14 years, will be twice a slave, once a prisoner. He will lose all of his family and his homeland and his reputation. He will, perhaps, well, he doesn't, and we'll talk about that later. Never a record of Joseph complaining or despairing. That's remarkable that the narrator left any of that out. I hope he leaves that out of the story of Mike in life. But, um, but Jeremiah said, O oh Lord, you deceived me, and I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. Have you thought that you were deceived by God? Has the end of a marriage or a bad report from the doctor or the loss of a job or the wayward wandering of a child, has that ever made you wonder what you misunderstood about the abundant life that Jesus promised you? about the never leaving and never forsaking that God said he would give to us? It surely has me. It surely has me. Well, stop trying to figure out the providence and just figure out the promise. Because not only does um, trying to control it and make it happen not work, Trying to control it and keeping it from happening doesn't work either. And that's what goes on here. This progression of animosity. Jealousy, then hatred, then more hatred, then even more hatred and violence. The language uh, in the Hebrew is uh, accelerating and emphatic. And they're just getting more and more and more furious at this punk younger brother that they have. Who for some reason, despite the fact that he's obviously... Um, a jerk their father loves more than he loves them. In fact, in one of the great turns of phrase, and you should know this, especially if you um, regularly offer dad jokes, which is your obligation as a father of the covenant, <laughs> the Hebrew scriptures are filled with puns. They're usually not funny. They're just insightful, but still. And in this case, the word Joseph means added to, the name Joseph. 
and, and, their, and his brothers add to their anger several times. So basically, his brothers, Joseph, Joseph. And as they, Joseph, Joseph, as they, as they live out his name, they become more and more angry at him. And then, of course, you know, here's the dreamer. Judah does not come out. If you think Judah looks bad in this story, read the next chapter. It's really bad. We're going to have to skip that chapter because, you know, I don't think the search team will take that long. But, uh, because it's really not about Joseph, but, but Judah doesn't look good here. He says, let's kill him. They see that dreamer. You know, the, the, the image of the narrative is, is packed. They're, they're um, ridiculing him by calling him the very thing God has made him. Oh, let's kill the one God gave the future to. They indict themselves in it as they Joseph, Joseph with their increased hatred. And it doesn't work, does it? I mean, that's the whole point of this story. If you're, if you're not, here's the spoiler alert. Uh, Joseph saves the day and he never dies, okay? So you, sh- you know, I should have told you that was coming earlier so you could have covered your ears. But the fact is, none of it works. Potiphar's wife, her opposition doesn't work. The neglect of the cupbearer and his um, oversight doesn't work. The famine doesn't work. Nothing works. And that's what I want you to know. I don't know what's going on in your life right now, but I know if you think it's stopping the love and the promise of God, it will not work. It absolutely will not work. And here's where I want us to humble our minds before the providence of God by looking at this passage and imagining living it without the book of Genesis. Because Joseph, you will remember, didn't have the book of Genesis, did he? He had a robe. He had a word about his ancestor Abraham from his father, who got it from his father, who got it from his father. And he had two dreams. And then imagine the violence of the scene that's just compressed in typical Hebrew narrative fashion. He is clearly attacked by his brothers stripped naked, undoubtedly wailing to resist them, and then thrown into a ditch. Don't let the simplicity of the account minimize the the violence and ferocity of the attack. And that's all he's got. So, So really, there you are. That's where you are after you've been beat up by whatever beat you up in 2019. And a lot of stuff beat us up in 2019. And then it had, you know, it wasn't just a virus, it just ricocheted into everything. But, but Joseph didn't have the book of Genesis, just like you don't have a map for your course of providence that God has for you as he leads you to the destiny of his promise. And you can't figure it out. You are not smart enough. I'm not smart enough. Look at all the, look at all the intersecting um, realities. Sin can't, sin is going to be used. Jacob's sin is going to be used, or excuse me, Judah's sin is going to be used to propel God's providence. 
So you can look at sin and decide that sin has destroyed God's purpose for your life. Um, then we've got Reuben. Reuben's trying. He's outnumbered. He's got a plan. He needs to get back in good standing with his father. But his kindness was falters. And, is, you know, it's, it's sort of small K kindness, right? Like, no, let's just beat him up and then throw him into the ditch. But it's still, he had a plan. He was, it was a tactical move for him. So failing kindness, the, the uh, T-Rex arms of the people that are trying to be kind to you can't quite finish the job because they're finite. Well, they can't stop it from happening. The providence of these sojourning marketers, these Ishmaelites just randomly coming, you can't interpret who's driving. By the way, who knows how many people are moving into Boise today? Too many. <laughs> yeah, all the people say that after they moved in. It's the same, in, it's the same way in Seattle. So <clears throat> you don't understand these things. The providence of more sin when they decide to kill him still propels him in that way. But here's really, and we're coming close to, to our conclusion here. Here's what I really want us to see. And I want us to move back from, from this one reality. All of these things, all of the hatred and animosity and all the jealousy and all the scheming and all the, all the small K T-Rex arm kindness that doesn't really get us out of trouble, even though it's well-meaning, all of the, the additional sin and all the complexities of the innumerable um, variables that made up your life today to get you here, those things are too great for us. And we've been given this one thing that's pictured here. In this passage, it's pictured when, when Reuben comes back and he looks in the pit. And, and guess who's not in the pit? Reuben evidently, <clears throat> I don't know what Reuben, maybe he was checking on the sheep. You know, maybe he was on his phone, not paying attention. You know, we don't know what Reuben was doing, but he comes back and he realizes that it's gone. And he rips his clothes, which is a sign of grief. And he says, where am I going to go? I have nowhere to go. And then, and then they... they do their scheme with the blood of the goat and, and this sinister, terrible, horrible scene where these sons come to their father and they're like, hey, do you recognize this, dad? And then they watch their dad destroyed in grief and um, rip his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. And then they have the gall, the temerity to like try to comfort him. That's the, that's the verse that gets me in this one. Oh, dad, it's okay. And what does he say? No, I won't be comforted. My son is dead. I will go to the grave. What he doesn't know is his son is not dead. What he doesn't know is he'll go to Egypt. And what we do know is that the son is not dead. That all of these little shadows of death in the valley of the shadow of death, that the shorthanded kindness, the, the sin, the confusion, the jealousy, all these little things don't lead to death for us. They lead to resurrection. The one thing that we know for 
sure from the resurrection. The one promise we've been given is that death no longer wins and it doesn't have a sting anymore. That's what you know. And every time you you lose hope or every time someone wounds you or every time you, you worry for a child and my wife and I have stayed up late worrying for children and praying for them, but mostly just worrying. And, you know, because that's the way it works. Because we all think it ends in death. We all think it's over. We all think we'll, we'll, we're on our way to the end of the promise. But Jesus showed us that we're on our way to the beginning of the promise. Jesus conquered death. Joseph cheated it as this reflection of the promised son to come. So how do you live in that? How do you live in it? Well, please remember these two things. The end is not the middle. What I'm trying to say is that what God has promised to you will be revealed when he's ready to display the fullness of his purpose and glory in your life. You hold on to that and don't try to draw it into the moment that you're living right now. Don't make the end the middle. Because if you make the end the middle, you'll get confused and discouraged. You'll be trying to control and figure out providence instead of relinquishing yourself because you figured out the promise. But remember this too. The middle is not the end. What's going on in your life right now serves a greater purpose, a time and a place where Tolkien said all the bad things come untrue. You are not in the last chapter of your life. The middle is not the end. The hardship is not the end. The the pit is not the end. The jail is not the end. Potiphar's wife is not the end. None of that is the end. So stop trying to just stop trying to figure out God's providence and rest in his promise. And I'll leave you with this word um, from the great divorce from C.S. Lewis. You cannot in your present state understand eternity, but the mentor talking, you, you can get some likeness of it if ye say that both good and evil, when they are full grown, become retrospective. Not only this valley, but all this earthly past will have been heaven to those who are saved. Not only the twilight in that town, but all their life on earth too will then be seen, also by the damned, as if they had been in hell. This is what mortals don't understand. You see what he's saying? He's saying that all this middle serves the promise. That when we see the fullness of the measure of the glory and the goodness of God, heaven, as it were, will recede in our memory. And we will finally understand that it was true indeed that all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. And you have been, and I have been, always and forever in heaven because we've been in God's providence to bring us there, just like he promised.
Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for your mercies. I ask you, please, Lord Jesus, um, please, Lord Jesus, help us to know your promise and trust you in your providence, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.